This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Australia's seasonal worker scheme is booming, but some Pacific countries are taking a step back. We hear what Australia's Pacific Minister has to say to concerns it's moving too fast. Some countries are probably reached to the point where they will choose not to send many more workers. It's well known that Samoa had a freeze last year while they conducted a review. Dangerous pastime or a healthier tobacco alternative? We look at how vaping is taking off among some Pacific youth and why it has health experts concerned. You know, obviously when you're inhaling anything directly into the lungs, that isn't meant to be there. It's a foreign it's a foreign agent. And could Indigenous Pacific music be losing out to international pop? Who wants to sing traditional song when you see hip-hop artists like Snoop Dogg on video and how cool he looks and you know, sing Justin Bieber? We'll hear what local artists are doing to win over a new generation of fans. All that and more today on Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, the Australian government says the 10,000 worker expansion of its seasonal worker scheme in less than a year shows it's a massive gain, not only to the domestic economy, but also thousands of Pacific families. It comes as several Pacific nations pull back on or call for a review into the scheme, saying the loss of workers from local industries is too much to bear. But speaking to ABC's Kath Sullivan, Australia's Pacific Minister Pat Conroy says there's room to improve, including implementing a minimum wage, even as the scheme rapidly grows. We set a target of getting 35,000 Pacific workers into the country by the end of June 2023. And in fact, we achieved that in December last year. And to give you an idea of the context of that growth, when we came to government in May, there were 24,000 Pacific workers. So to get to 35,000 means we've grown the scheme by almost 50% in seven months. Is that fair context, though? I mean, the former government was dealing with COVID lockdowns. There were no flights in and out of the country, for example. Example. Isn't that a little bit misleading? Well, it's certainly the case in 2021 and 2020 that the borders were closed, but the borders were well and truly opened in 2022. So I think it's really important to understand that this scheme has grown by 50, almost 50%. And that's great news for industry in terms of filling their temporary labour shortages. But as importantly, it's great news for Pacific nations and their uh, citizens. The average worker uh, sends back $15,000 a year, and that's in the context of a third of people living on $1,000 a year. So this is lifting people, families and communities out of poverty. So of that 35000 there'd be perhaps 500 in aged care? Uh, the goal is 500 so by the end of this year. There's two trials uh, pre-existing of about 80 workers and there's the goal of another 500 workers. Tourism is there in hospitality, but it's fair to say that the two most significant industries are fruit picking and meat processing. Mm. And as I said, it, it's great to fill labour shortages, but also equally great to skill up Pacific workers and send home money. Are you hearing concerns from Pacific nations that Australia is draining it of its talent and and its labour? The the dominant theme is uh, tremendous enthusiasm 
for this scheme. Like the, the 35,000 workers cumulatively are sending back around 500 million Australian dollars a year to their economies. They are literally lifting their communities out of poverty and they're getting skills. Like for example, I met Georgie in Vanuatu who worked in a flower farm in my electorate and has now used the money to set up um, housing affordable developments in Vanuatu. Christelle's another worker. She set up a female-run um, uh, farm in Vanuatu. I met with Joseph and Jared, who come back from Meatworks to set up um, businesses in Solomon Island. So it's lifting people out of poverty, giving them skills and training workers in areas like aged care. So overwhelmingly, it's positive. Uh, some countries are probably reached to the point where th they will choose not to send many more workers. Uh, and ultimately, the country where the workers come from decide how many workers they send, and it's their right to uh, slow down a bit. Which nations are pulling up uh, Well, it's, it's well known that Samoa... Uh, uh, had a freeze last year while they conducted a review. So it's fair to say some of the Polynesian countries like Samoa and Tonga have very high penetration rates. So, for example, uh, Tonga out of a population of 100,000, there's about 5,000 working in Australia. So that's a very high percentage of their uh, uh, citizens. But other countries are really keen to wrap it up. So, for example, Papua New Guinea, with a population of at least 10 million, has about 1,500 workers in Australia. And when I was in Papua New Guinea with the Prime Minister two weeks ago, uh, we signed a, an MOU or, or a statement setting a goal of 8,000 Papua New Guinean workers coming into Australia. So some countries are probably keen to uh, slow down, but other countries are very keen to ramp it up. And of these 35,000 workers who have come from the Pacific to work for an approved employer, mm. people may not realise, but the government signs off on a program mm. um, agreeing to the ter mm. terms and conditions mm. of that employment, seeing that employment linked mm. with a specific employer. How many of these 35,000 workers have left their approved employer and will run away, for want of a better term? Well, a, a very small number have what's called disengaged from their employer. There's a range of reasons for that. Uh, probably the, the dominant reason is not uh, being completely satisfied with the wages and conditions that they're living under. Uh, importantly, and let me assure your, your listeners and viewers, that uh, Pacific workers uh, have full access to Australian uh, workplace laws and paying conditions. So, for example, if they're directly employed by a company and that company has an enterprise agreement, they'll get paid exactly the same wage as an Australian doing that job. And that's very important. And we've increased protections for workers uh, under this scheme, and we'll keep doing that to make sure that we stamp out exploitation that occurs. Two deductions. Now, this is the cost that a palm worker expenses. Of course, it's expensive to bring somebody from the Pacific to Australia to work on a farm or in a hospitality setting. Um, we know that there are workers who are paying back the cost of their accommodation, their flights, insurances, other costs associated with that travel, in some instances leaving workers with as little as $100 a week. Are you concerned about that? Is that something that you're looking at or is that in fact how the, how the system was designed to work? Uh, well, there's two separate issues. One is legitimate deductions for things such as the airfare to come over and accommodation and it's really important that they're explained transparently and one of the issues is that sometimes workers don't fully 
um, understand what those deductions are going to be. So that's a really important issue that we're addressing and it's one of the reasons we've transferred oversight to the Department of Workplace Relations to make sure that that is all done properly. Other things are about um, working on improvements to the scheme such as uh, guaranteeing a minimum um, take-home pay. That, that's an initiative that we're exploring at the moment so that workers understand truly that after the deductions this is the absolute minimum amount of money that they're going to take home. But the important thing is that in... in Would that know, be more or less than $100? Uh, well, I'm not going to get into um, hypotheticals while we're looking at uh, policy options. But importantly, I need to assure your viewers that the overwhelming majority of cases, workers are treated respectfully. They're paid appropriately for their job. They're paid the same as the Australian uh, workplace relations law mm. specifies. And they're sending home very significant amounts of money and developing skills that are transforming their lives. So this is a positive day. Yes, there are things that we can improve on, but this is a scheme that I think is a critical part of our outreach into the Pacific. When I meet with Pacific Prime Ministers and Ministers, they're very enthusiastic about the scheme because they understand how transformational it is for their nation. That was Australia's Pacific Minister Pat Conroy speaking there to the ABC's Kath Sullivan. New Zealand's Prime Minister has welcomed a shift in Australian policy toward deporting Kiwi nationals as common sense. Australia will now consider the length of time a New Zealander convicted of a crime has been living in the country before deporting them. The issue has been a point of contention between Australia and New Zealand for many, many years. Recent studies suggest more than 60% of those deported since 2015 are of Maori or Pacific Islander descent. New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says some people deported across the Tasman in recent years have lived in Australia for the majority of their lives. Yeah, I'd like to welcome the 501's decision that the Australian government have recently announced. Um, this is something that the New Zealand government has been um, working with Australia um, to achieve for quite some time now. It's a very welcome first step. Of course, there are issues that we want to continue to work with Australia on, and further work around the 501's is one of those things. Um, but the, the acknowledgement on the Australian side that actually some of the people that we are talking about have had a long history in Australia. Some of them have been there since they were very young children um, and sending them to New Zealand um, when they have no connections here other than a, a very historic one um, isn't really a, a fair or just outcome. I think the acknowledgement of that by the Australians is very, very welcome um, and it is a sign that you know uh, we're working constructively together. I'm sure it will be an ongoing topic of conversation, um, as a range of other issues are. The New Zealand government has also been working with Australia on the, you know, just the general treatment of New Zealanders living in Australia, and we'll talk about those sorts of things as well. That was New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins being there. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Hope you're easing on in onto your into your Thursday morning. Fruity, fun, cool, these are the words smokers are using to describe e-cigarettes or vapes, as they're often called. The electronic devices are becoming increasingly popular in some Pacific countries, particularly among young people. It's marketed as a healthier alternative to tobacco cigarettes, but around the world, experts are warning of potential health risks associated with the craze. Reporter Marion Farr peeks beyond the smoke screen to find out what it's all about. Young people like to vape because it looks cool. In the Solomon Islands capital, Honiara, there's a new fad taking off. 
there's a lot of young people, especially. Maybe they do seen vapings and stuff on social media. The electronic devices, called e-cigarettes or vapes, are plastic tubes that contain a flavoured liquid. When you inhale, the liquid is heated to produce an aerosol that's breathed into the lungs and then blown out again, like a cigarette. Honiara local Laura Chan took up vaping after she saw the devices being used on social media. I first learned and saw e-cigarette at Facebook, Instagram and on TikTok. She heard that vaping could help her quit regular tobacco cigarettes, so she decided to give it a go. This is not good for my health, so I want to try the e-cigarette. As vapes rapidly increased in popularity, Laura decided to start selling them to her friends. The price depends on how many puffs the vape is. Like for 7,000 puffs, it's around $350. It's no small sum of money, and for a while she was able to make a little income. But now e-cigarettes are being sold by so many people in Honiara, she's decided it's no longer worth her while. I just quit selling vapes because there's lots of people else selling. In Papua New Guinea, e-cigarettes are also a hit. Port Moresby resident Adolf Kassar says he sometimes uses vapes as an alternative to cigarettes in places where you're not allowed to smoke. At clubs or like any indoor place that they don't allow cigarettes, I, I vape he too discovered the devices on the internet. Looking at yeah, like people, like on YouTube and whatever, like it was a new thing that I saw. The use of e-cigarettes is increasing around the globe. One report in the medical journal The Lancet predicts the worldwide sale of vapes will more than double to forty billion US dollars by this year. Often they're marketed as a healthy alternative to regular cigarettes and can be prescribed to help people quit smoking. But some health experts are concerned. We do know that these products are harmful. Dr Michelle John Janellis is a public health researcher from the University of Melbourne. Her focus is in the field of smoking and tobacco, and more recently, e-cigarettes. You know, obviously when you're inhaling anything directly into the lungs that isn't meant to be there, it's a foreign it's a foreign agent. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, respiratory illnesses. An Australian National University review into vapes found some early warning signs of risks associated with blood pressure and heart rate. But in terms of ongoing use, the science is a little more hazy. Well, long term, we actually have no idea. One of the major issues, according to Dr John Janellis, is a lack of regulation around the ingredients contained in vapes. You know, you can go into the store, uh, any store, and, and pick up a liquid uh, that you put in your device or a liquid that comes, you know, pre, pre-packaged within the device already. And we don't actually know what's in that liquid. Many vaping products say they don't contain nicotine, the same addictive chemical found in tobacco. But Dr John Janellis says testing has often found that that's not true. What we know when we actually take these products back to the lab is that the liquids that say they don't contain nicotine actually do end up containing nicotine. She says that's a worry because it puts users, particularly young people, at risk of developing an addiction. And whether vapes actually help people to quit smoking 
Well, that's a bit unclear too. There is some evidence to suggest these products might be able to help people quit smoking, uh, but there's also evidence that says people who use these products, never smokers who use these products, are three times more likely to then go on and smoke tobacco cigarettes and actually take up tobacco cigarettes. For Laura Chan, using vapes didn't help her quit smoking. I had the vape for a month and then I go back to cigarette because... I don't feel like vaping is is satisfying me like cigarette. But she thinks the trend will continue to grow in the Pacific. That was Marion Farr with that report. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. The Australian government have announced that they will be supporting rugby union in Tonga, Samoa, Solomon Islands and Fiji. Think about Fiji, they've absolutely dominated on the world stage. So I'm like, do you guys really need the money? <laughs> Maybe they need to do like some exchange with Fijian coaches. Now that's a thought. Over here, like. I love that. Can You Be More Pacific? Thursday night, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to Pacific Beat and it is that time of the show where we find out what's making news around the region. And we have a special news uh, news wrap today because we were hoping to head to Vanuatu earlier in the show to find out what had happened about that um, underwater volcanic eruption you might have been seeing. It's made international headlines. Um, basically what happened is that an uh, underwater, underwater volcano, the East Epi volcano, in fact, uh, erupted about 100 kilometres from capital Port Villa. It sent, it sent plumes of ash into the air and led to um, the authorities issuing a warning. For more on exactly what happened, we have uh, Kyle Evans uh, with us now. Good morning, Kyle. Can you tell us the latest about this volcano? Yeah, so uh, like you said, it's it's uh, pretty early days at the moment, but uh, it hit six kilometres east of Epi Island, which is actually north of the mainland there in Vanuatu. Um, apparently, it had been trembling and spitting steam since early Wednesday morning, uh, which triggered several several warnings. Um, the Seismology and Mineral Resources uh, Department, they're based in Fiji. They actually warn the volcano has potential to generate tsunamis. Um, low-lying, low-lying areas are very much advised to keep a lookout, but still very early days. I think a lot of the seismologist departments are still sort of gathering information to figure out exactly um, what kind of risks uh, they're facing at the moment. Um, and word out of the Vanuatu Geohazard Observatory um, has reported steam actually still remains over that submarine uh, volcano area. Um, RNZ, so uh, they're based in New Zealand, they actually um, spoke to a submarine senior volcano officer, Ricardo William. Uh, he was actually meant to be on our show this Indeed, morning, as, yes. you'll, uh, as you'll remember. Um, he's given a bit of advice to the aviation industry as well um, to the marinas to basically stay completely away from the area while it's still uh, very much uncertain. And, uh, and apparently it's actually one of a series of volcanoes in the area that erupted and it last erupted in 2004. Yes, when we hear about old, old underwater volcanic eruptions, particularly just around this time of year, last year, of course, uh, around the end of January, we had that Tongan um, volcano, or mid-January actually it was, I think 15th. Um, and so I'm sure a lot of authorities are on alert there. And yes, there has been a 10-kilometre danger zone uh, around that eruption area in East Epi. Um, and 
And yes, ships and aircrafts have been asked to avoid the area. The last update from uh, Vanuatu's Meteorology and Geohazards Department was about a day ago, about 21 hours ago. So we're still awaiting any updates there. But um, obviously people who are listening that are around that area or even low-lying areas in in the Pacific in general should um, keep a watch because obviously there is that threat of tsunami and and things getting getting bigger. But hopefully uh, they do calm down there. Um, if you are listening and you are there, we've heard reports, we've seen reports on, on online on Twitter of um, the plume of smoke. I don't know if you've seen these, um, Kyle, mm. but, you know, really stretching into the air, quite um, scary stuff. Um, if you are listening and have seen them, do, do get in touch at ABC Pacific. If you just wonder with a volcano that erupts underwater, what kind of image uh, that would create you know, on the surface? You know, it, it'd just be, I imagine it'd be incredible to see. Yes, yeah. Well, incredible and scary if you're close <laughs> by, I imagine, yes. Um, yeah, massive plumes of smoke that we're seeing on, on images online. Um, yes, do get in touch at ABC Pacific is our Twitter handle. Um, you can reach us there on Facebook as well. And we'll try our best to get some updates from Vanuatu authorities themselves um, here on Pacific Beat um, or later uh, through the day on Radio Australia. We'll keep you updated. Um, you, you can also find us on Facebook where we'll update you with any latest information. But now let's head on to other news, Kyle. Um, we've got a statement from the Pacific Islands Forum. Finally, they've officially welcomed Kiribati back into the fold. Um, they left but came back. We were reporting on that, I think, earlier early in the week. Um, what has PIF said about this? Yeah, very good news uh, for PIF. I can still remember back in July when uh, when Kiribati left the forum. It uh, it was a, basically a diplomatic disaster <laughs> for the body. And uh, so, yeah, look, they're, they're in very happy spirits today. Uh, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, Henry Puna, released an official statement uh, confirming the country's intention to return. Uh, and that follows that successful meeting earlier this month, or last month, I should say, um, between the Kiribati president and the new Fiji. PM Sitavani Rambuka. Uh, Mr. Puna actually thanked uh, Mr. Rambuka personally uh, in a statement, basically just for his statesmanship uh, in being able to successfully bring Kiribati back into the fold. Um, Kiribati was the first country he visited since taking that top job, and, and you know I imagine this outcome was a big reason for that visit. Um, and yeah, like I said, almost eight months ago to the day since uh, since Kiribati left the forum um, over concerns that uh, the, the forum wasn't ad- adequately addressing some of those concerns of uh, of Micronesian countries. Um, but it appears they're ready to turn over turn over a new leaf. And now, look, given the diplomatic body is back at full strength, they can go back to providing that key oversight that they're they're used to doing. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, we we did speak to um, the Federated States of Micronesia's president earlier in the week about what this means. For for, for him as well and his his country, and also what it means for I guess um, Pacific solidarity and and diplomacy as well. Um, he said this just a united Pacific Islands forum means that they can take issues like climate change, like geopolitical um, stability to higher um, high forums and mm-hmm. they will you know know that it is a united Pacific speaking on these issues. So, yes, I'm sure everyone uh, in PIF, a lot of diplomats around the region are sighing a, a big sigh of relief. Um, now, we were in Vanuatu earlier to talk about um, that volcanic eruption, but um, let's head back there to speak about that Malvatumari Nakamal meeting house that, that burnt down um, earlier in the week. Um, we had a story about it yesterday and, and heard that Vanuatu police have requested the help of Australia to help um, investigate and find out exactly what's burned down, but I believe there's more news on that. 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, they've requested the help of the the, A- the AFP to determine uh, whether or not the incident was actually arson. So I guess that's probably been the big question uh, hanging over this is, you know, how exactly did it burn down? It always probably seemed a little bit suspicious uh, when you read those uh, those first reports. Um, the Vanuatu Police Commissioner has confirmed that Australia has been called into it to assist their forensic department. So, look, they'll obviously have a lot of, uh, you know, specialised uh, abilities uh, in that department there. Um, turns out Australia actually actually helped fund the construction of the building, um, uh, which is worth about a hundred million Vatu and, and US, which is amounts to about a US eight hundred thousand dollars. So, um, yeah, look, it's, it's it's very expensive as well. Um, but it's it's like you said, it's, it's culturally, it's what makes it so important. Um, that building serves as a, a custom parliament for all of Vanuatu's chiefs. Um, it was there when you know the first Christian pioneers entered the island and was a symbol of uh, of peace and unity. Mm. Um, and uh, can you remind us what the extent of dam- the damage was? Yeah, look, it completely raised uh, all businesses uh, activities at the headquarters. You know, things like carver bars have all been put on hold until until further no- until further notice. Yes, and if you want to re-listen to our story that covered all the ins and outs of that fire, um, well, at least what we know so far, um, you can head onto our ABC Pacific website and hear listen to Mackenzie Smith, who did that report for us just yesterday, so the first of February. Um, Carl, thanks so much, but you'll, I'm sure, be eagerly listening to the upcoming stories that are uh, here on, on Pacific Beat. Are you a Justin Bieber fan? Are you a Peter Justin fan? Bieber? Oh, one time. It's still a classic, let's be honest. I think that was probably his first or second hit, actually. But uh, I don't mind I don't mind a bit of Biebs. Yes, yes. And he has got some, I know he had some Pacific Islander dancers um, for one of his tracks. I think it was Sorry. But some artists in Solomon Islands are warning that these pop artists, like, like the Biebs, like Justin Bieber, are sort of uh, drawing audiences away from traditional music, Indigenous music, which also needs uh, a lot of attention and support because, well, well, not only is it great music, but we want to see it continue into the future. Um, so we'll be hearing what those Solomon Islander artists are doing. And we'll head back to Vanuatu to also look at how authors are trying to tackle the um, the question of how to get children to, to be interested in their history. So we'll also have a story on that. If you, Kyle, can stick around and also our listeners can stick around for that. Happy to do so. You're listening to Pacific Beat for your Thursday morning. Hopefully you're having a lovely time. Uh, my name is Priyanka Srinivasan. Traditional owners in the Torres Strait have taken aim at Australia's border protection and fisheries authorities for what they say is a lax attitude to incursions by illegal fishing boats from Papua New Guinea. Speaking to reporter Charlie McKillop, Gurabadakawa Co, uh, JBK it's also known as, Sea and Land Council Chairman Ned David, said he believes the illegal incursions highlight a need to renegotiate a decades-old treaty with Papua New Guinea. There were reports of a, a fisherman from Yama, also known as Yam Island, seeing a, sp- a suspicious vessel in, um, I think, the Warrior Reef area. This has been, uh, you know, this is a ri- rich hunting ground for your people for fishing. Um, what uh, has happened in relation to those concerns and that report? Uh, nothing very little, Charlie, to be honest. Look, I think, um, uh, as, as we've said, you know, in, in the press release, I think um, we've done all the right things, followed the rules, um, reported this to the appropriate authorities, and we've seen very little. Um, I think the response is still coming. As I understand it, there's been a meeting convened on YAM itself, uh, attended by Border Force. I'm uh, not exactly sure whether that's in response to what we're raising, uh, but this is incredible how I think um, the way we see it, um, 
it seems that uh, we're the sacrificial lamb, you know, in the ongoing. No, I fully understand that we've got to keep Papua New Guinea on side and not entertain them, you know, having, you know, the sort of arrangements that uh, we don't want to see flow across the Pacific where they're entertaining, you know, other foreign interests. Uh, but this is about First Nations people in Australia who are trying to survive. I mean, we, we're paying almost $4 a litre of petrol, my people, you know, to, just to go out fishing and to go out there and see someone else, you know, who we believe is camped permanently, illegally, in our waters on some of our islands, which I think breaches a number of the articles in the treaty. Um, I think it warrants an investigation. So you're not suggesting that this is just a little skirmish or a cross-border um, foray? This is somebody that is targeting the waters and knows that they shouldn't be there? Absolutely. There are people camping on the reef at night. There are people camping on our islands at night. And that's totally, you know, against any of the articles in the treaty. And I, I do believe that, you know, the response has been a long time coming. I mean, there are reports of where things have done in the past that we've reported in the last 20 years, I know, that's never been addressed. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's high time that we, you know, bring some attention to, you know, this particular area of Australia where, I mean, you know, we policed it really well during COVID. Um, and since, you know, we're in sort of post-COVID era, um, that, that, that attention to that part of the Australian border has been, you know, pretty poor. You have just touched on the geopolitical sensitivities around Papua New Guinea. We have heard reports and, and have seen evidence of an enormous a flurry of investment made by China in uh, Papua New Guinea, in particular the Western Province Regional Centre of Daru, which is uh, very close to the Torres Strait. Um, I, I, is your concern that the, the uh, illegal incursions by foreign boats is it becoming more sophisticated? Is there any evidence to suggest it's more coordinated than what it once was? I don't believe it's sophisticated. I, I just think it's a blatant disregard for what the rules at play here. Um, there's a number of things I think we need to address. Uh, one obvious one is, you know, how the treaty is managed. I think it's overdue for reform. Uh, the fact that I think we have, you know, people representing the interest of islanders, you know, during these bilateral conversations, have absolutely no connection to traditional owner interest. I think that's number one. Um, there's no one in the Torres Strait, traditional owners of this is, who have any idea what these conversations are in, you know, in any of the bilateral arrangements. And I think that's where we should start. Um, I know for a fact that, you know, we um, you know, are on the border of uh, Western Province, which is one of the poorest, you know, provinces in Papua New Guinea. Totally get that. Totally get that we have humane, you know, I think uh, obligations to our neighbours. And, and we've always supported that. Uh, but this sort of activity is just absolutely illegal and it's not in the interest of both traditional owner groups on either side of the border. I guess my question was, do you believe that, that the foreign fishing activity um, is being backed by Chinese investment? Well, that's what the intel says. I know well, that's what we've been told. That on both sides of the border, we have Chinese interest in, in, the, in our fisheries. And that's another concern I think that needs to be addressed. Ned David, uh, I have read your statement and these are fighting words. And in the statement, you've essentially said that Australian fishing authorities are tougher on endorsed traditional inhabitant fishers from the Torres Strait than they are on operators of illegal foreign boats. I mean, how, how does that sit with, uh, with locals? Oh, well, as you can imagine, you know, we're getting hit at all sides. Not only are we having to comply, I think, with some of, some of the rules, which I think are just archaic, I think 
we're also having to compete against interests that are not policed. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, either way we go, you know, we're, we're in the middle. Um, we're getting caught in the crossfire. You've got a 50-year-old treaty that uh, you believe traditional owners ought to have a, a seat at the table. You think that um, the Australian government is listening? I certainly hope so. Look, I know, you know we've got um, a new government in and I, I believe, you know, for a number of things that we've negotiated with this uh, new government, we've, we've come out all right. And I think in the spirit of, you know, what the nation is heading for a voice in parliament, uh, you know, there are conversations in the state around, you know, Treaty for First Nations People. I think the time is right. That was GBKC and Land Council Chairman Ned David speaking there to reporter Charlie McKillop. The influx of Western songs and pop, pop culture into the Pacific often comes at the detriment of traditional Indigenous music. But one Melbourne-based Solomon Islands artist is hoping to reverse the trend. Charles Maimorosia headlined the recent One Talk Music Festival in Honiara, where he showed a new generation of Solomon Islanders Indigenous music. Kristen Rita Amanu Leong with more. Charles Maimorosia's chants in his native Are Are language were met by shouts of appreciation. For him, the song about young love and dating provided an opportunity to inspire the young minds. When you know who you are, where you're from, what's your music, your cultural food, what you're known for, all of this, if you know, you know your future. He says it's important for the younger generation to value the old ways of life, something he feels is missing nowadays. If you don't know your culture, where will you go? There'll be no future for you. So it's important for this generation to mirror things like songs, stories and poems. Cultural food, morals and values have shaped our lives for many years. Our ancestors have lived in peace and harmony and it's equally important for our young people to do the same. Australian One Talk Music Foundation Artistic Director David Bridie says Solomon Islands languages are unique with its different metaphors of life and melodies some of which were highlighted during the three-hour concert. The substance, I think, comes from the unique Solomon Islands art. It also promotes a really, a narrative picture of Solomon's, a positive picture, a grassroots picture, a, a picture that links back to the lifestyles of ancestors from years and years ago. So as well as being entertainment and as well as being informative, it, uh, recording this music or recording these pictures or painting them and having them documented stops them from being lost. Willie Tekatoha from Kaumakonga says it's a rewarding feeling to perform in front of his own people for the first time in a decade. But the challenge, he says, is retaining the original meanings of songs. 
so, so the songs are, are, are pretty unique in the way that the majority of the songs that we use um, are around 400 to 600 years old. Some of them we have lost a few meanings of it. Um, even though if we really sit down and concentrate and sort of uh, work out the meaning and siphon it out from the old language, uh, it's a different kind of level, the higher, le the higher level language and, and the day-to-day -day language. But it, it's when it comes to art, it, it's like poetry. You, know, you speak English on a daily basis, but when you write when you write a song in poetry, it, sometimes it's, it's sort of the message is hidden in it. And what do you do when traditional music starts to lose the interest of young listeners? For Tekatoha, it's about adapting, competing, and growing with the times. Who wants to sing traditional song when you see hip hop artists like, um, you know, um, the American hip hop artists and um, yeah, Snoop Dogg on video and how cool he looked and you know, just seeing Justin Bieber. It's competing with the um, with the art of the, of, of the developed world, competing with American art and the New Zealand Australian art. What's appealing to young uh, boys and girls these days is definitely not the traditional music. Um, so that's why we're blending it to sound a bit more modern without very. You know, being careful not to lose its originality, but you know, we're adding bass, we're adding guitars, and we're adding collaborating with, uh, as you can see me from the back, um, um, uh, indigenous Australians playing his modernized didgeridoo. Um, so those are the things we look for to, for new, um, innovative ways to attract new and young musicians to, to, to take on the role. Uh, at this stage, it doesn't look good, but we're not giving up. <laughs> That was Willie Teka Tua from Kao Makonya, ending that report from ABC's Chris and Rita Almanu Leong in Honiara. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. It can be hard to get young children to care about our nation's histories, but a new book, book in Vanuatu is trying to tackle the task. Tough Tomas, Becoming Vanuatu, features 42 stories about important figures that shaped the country. It will be distributed to schools free of charge. Charge, And as Dubrovka Volodair found when she spoke with creator and managing editor Anna Naupa, there's a lot going into it. We have in it, uh, you know, stories about Vanuatu's well-known leaders in the lead-up to independence in 1980, uh, you know, whether they were political, professional, uh, religious or chiefly. But also the stories are about the hidden figures who may not have been in the public eye yet were quietly and diligently working away towards uh, the idea of independence and the eventual achievement of it for Vanuatu as a country. It also celebrates the diversity of how communities and people come together to produce, in this sense, you know, to self-determination. So the poets who spoke and lended their voices to the cause, the teachers who prepared to build a young nation through education, health workers, the chiefs who united communities. So it's it takes a very broad view of how we look at leadership and how we look at public service in the in our country. And I believe there are 42 stories for children, parents and teachers to read together. I don't know whether you have a book in front of you that you can possibly just maybe, even if it's just a paragraph, read to us. Yes, I'll read one here that is about uh, Ati George Sokumanu. 
who was the first president of Vanuatu, and we're very uh, fortunate that he is the first president of a country that is still with us today, and we can talk to him and ask questions, and he's very generous with his time. It starts with, George Kalkoa was walking home from his garden one day when he was surprised to find his friend and fellow political activist, John Naufa, who happens to be my dad, waiting at his house. John said, hurry, you have to get on the next flight. It was 1973, and pro-independence activists had named George, later known as Ati George Sokumanu, to be their representative to ask the United Nations to start the decolonization process. And then the story goes on, particularly around that moment of going to the UN and uh, seeking uh, support for decolonization at that level, and then how that grew on. So that's an example of one of the stories, or at least the beginning of one of them. And tell me a bit about the um, artwork, because I think that's also quite special. Oh, the artwork. I love the artwork. And most of the artwork in the books produced by talented children in Vanuatu, as well as in our Vanuatu diaspora in, in two other countries. So we had 16 young artists overall contribute. Um, and they were very keen to be part of a national history project. Our youngest was eight years old at the time, and uh, a lot of the artwork was produced during Vanuatu's version of a lockdown in 2022. So it was they were all homeschooling, and it was a great opportunity for them to um, just give some time to their art as well. And I believe the books will be distributed in Vanuatu's schools free of charge. Can you tell me a bit about that plan? So we're heading into the new school year. In Vanuatu, it starts on the 6th of February, and we're looking forward to ensuring that these books reach the libraries of every school in English and French around Vanuatu. What sort of significance do you think will these books have for children, for their parents, and for teachers? Will they be quite an important resource, and why do we need them? You know, the, the Taftumas uh, series comes under the umbrella of the Nambanga Pikaninni Association, and in that we have a Vanuatu Children's Literature Initiative. And the Banga Pikaninni was established uh, to um, record and safeguard and share uh, children's stories from our traditional uh, oral, oral traditions and cultures in Vanuatu, uh, but also more recently with the more contemporary. The feedback we had from the first book was overwhelmingly positive and not only in terms of just having a book of stories but it was because we had a multimedia approach www.tuftumas.com that's t-a-f-t-u-m-a-s that website made sure that if those who were not able to physically access a book but had um, access to a website and a device and internet they could still um, read the books online Uh, the stories online, they're also audio recorded. We've audio recorded in three languages, in English, French and Bishlama. The first volume ended up getting used in the Vanuatu government's homeschool care package, which was really important during the, the COVID lockdown and homeschooling period, uh, but also remains a resource for ongoing remote schooling that is required from time to time because Uh, we do face regular climate-induced disasters here in Vanuatu and have frequent uh, disrupted education. Just our lessons from the first book um, and the way in which it was received and that people continue to demand more, uh, we were encouraged by that. Uh, we hope that this next 
um, volume that we've just launched, or the Prime Minister of Vanuatu, Alatoa Ishmael Kalsakau, has just launched. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to inspire reading uh, in our youth, in our young people, but also help them connect with their parents and adults uh, over stories uh, that um, you know support that intergenerational transfer of knowledge and build, you know, our collective understanding of Vanuatu's trajectory in the world. And Anna, what's next? Is there a third book in the making? <laughs> Someone jokingly said at the launch, yep, now it's time for book three. There's been a two-year gap between the first two books, so we'll, we'll say watch this space. And that was Anna Naupart speaking there with Dubrovka Volodar. And with that, we're coming to the end of Pacific Beat, but do stick around. News is next, and you can stay in touch with us at ABC Pacific. And also tomorrow, we've got our sports show, so do hang on for that. Thank you so much. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Have a lovely day.